Ahoy! It's your boy! And today is Sunday, December 17th. And if you're sitting there thinking, wow, my boy sounds different, that's because your boy is now a college grad. I had my last final Friday night, 7 p.m. It was wild biking to school that late at night. But it was actually kind of nice. Uh, I prepared as, you know, I didn't need to knock this one out of the park necessarily. This was my history final. Um, and uh, it's one of the classes that I'm taking pass, no pass. And so I prepared well enough. And the final was supposed to take about three hours. I took about two hours and 15 minutes and finished. Didn't really feel the need to review my work knowing I had done good enough and uh, left. And the last thing I did, actually, it was kind of funny because as I was writing, uh, basically most of the um, most of the final was sort of uh, essay and a lot of writing. And as I was sort of sitting there writing, I was thinking, I sort of had this thought of, you know, this is my last time leaving a class at Berkeley. You know, and I and I actually really enjoyed this teacher, and I didn't have a lot of opportunity to communicate with them, frankly, because I really didn't attend the lecture. All the lectures were recorded, and for the first like two weeks, I was there, and then I realized, oh, I can just watch these on my own time, and uh, even kind of speed them up a little bit. And so I certainly watched all the lectures and took detailed notes, but I hadn't spent a lot of face time with the teacher. But one thing I really appreciated about this person was their enthusiasm. And so I was like, should I like make a point of saying something to him as I leave? And I thought, you know, yeah, you're walking out the door. It's, you know, thank your teacher or something. So as I left, I sort of put my uh, composition book or blue book or whatever they call it uh, in front of him. And I just sort of lean over and give him a handshake. And as quietly as I can say, I say, I just want to thank you for your enthusiasm. You know, it really makes the material come alive or something like that. And I saw this look come over his face. It looked like it was very fulfilling for him to hear. So that was how I left. And uh, I ended up biking home and it was pitch black and it was kind of cool to see the Campanile, which is like this very famous building uh, on the Berkeley campus all kind of lit up and it was quiet and it was just kind of a nice, I don't know, kind of a cinematic way to uh, end my time uh, at UC Berkeley. So um, not much else to say. Uh, rest of the finals went well. Assignments got turned in. Uh, and, you know, unless there's some rip in the space-time continuum of my understanding, uh, there's no conceivable way that I uh, haven't passed my courses and graduated and um, am pretty much done with anything. So, <clears throat> you know, I've really done nothing the last couple days other than kind of like watching movies. And actually, to be fair, I've actually started... I mentioned that one of the things I'm going to be doing between now and the time I leave for Taiwan is get TEFL certified, T-E-F-L, TEFL certified, just so I have that certification should I ever need to make money teaching English or something while I'm abroad. Uh, and I admit I started that, which is actually pretty interesting. I mean, it's not the most fun modality of, you know, it's an online instruction certification style thing. So it's not the most engaging, but uh, the information is actually pretty interesting. And there are some assignments where you have to think through, you know, if I was teaching in the classroom, how might I approach the situation? And when I actually think about that stuff, I actually get kind of excited. So it's, it's kind of, I, I can already kind of see how I can draw on all of my experiences, whether it's as a performer or as a crisis counselor, uh, or in a, especially as someone who's learning a difficult language like Chinese. English is, I would actually argue for non-native speakers, English might be the most difficult language for people to learn. And so I think I can, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's cool to think that I might be able to draw on my experiences to help people 
navigate that should I have to. Not that that's necessarily an ambition or a goal that I have is to teach English, but um, should I have to? It's just kind of cool to see that I have a repository of experiences that I can draw on to do that. Um, I was sort of sitting here thinking about what I might talk about if I chose to talk at all. The only thing that was kind of on my mind is uh, I watched Barbie. Uh, I guess it was actually Friday night when I finished my final. I got home, I ordered a pizza, and I was like, all right, I'm going to watch a movie. And I saw that Barbie was now streaming. And I really didn't like it. And um, I think I might have to watch it again to gather more thoughts about it because, I, I, honestly, I, was, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting to love it, but I was disappointed that I didn't like it because I don't know if it's all the firearm talk or whatever, but it just, I feel like I was talking about being a contrarian or something recently, but, you know, Barbie was a huge film. And I remember when it came out, I was very skeptical about it. It was also coming out around the time of Oppenheimer. And these movies were kind of, they were paired together, right? The sort of Barbieheimer, what do they call it? The Barbieheimer or something? Um, uh, but admittedly, they were kind of contrasted. You know, I know Christopher Nolan's kind of a self-serious, a tourist-style filmmaker, and Barbie was kind of framed as this kind of fluff film. So I had my arms kind of crossed about it. But people were very evangelical that this was a, that Barbie was going to be a serious film by a legit filmmaker, Greta Gerwig. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to be surprised. I wanted to like it. Um, and I honestly found it, like, pretty incoherent and also a pretty, you know, a pretty awful example of what, you know, sort of filmmaking becomes when it's at, you know, I was sort of watching it and I was like, this is just like some kind of fucking meta-modern, like Mattel multiverse of self-awareness. You know, it was a movie that was so self-conscious of itself as being scrutinized as like a social commentary that it it had trouble kind of saying anything incoherent, uh, anything coherent, because it was constantly like self qualifying itself, and it, it was just kind of a clusterfuck. And um, so I'm disappointed that I didn't like it. Although I'll, you know, I I I I feel like I want to watch it again, and maybe get some more coherent thoughts before I talk about it more. Uh, not that you're dying to hear my opinion about it, but I just felt if I am gonna have something critical to say about it, I just want to make sure I have my ducks in a row because I think it's the type of movie that people will. Uh, be very defensive of and be very critical of people or, you know, are probably more prone to be critical of people who didn't like it because, you know, they there's some ideological association that's going to be made with you if you didn't uh, love this film. So what I'd like to do, and this may actually scare you more than anything else, is I actually want to read you my honors thesis, which I finished. And I don't know if I'll be able to get through the whole thing. I'm not sure I'll want to get through the whole thing. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure how this is going to play out. I think the easiest way to do it would actually be to break it into two parts, um, which may sound even worse to you. But uh, it's very long. It's about 70 pages, and uh, that includes an append- appendix and the references. So, you know, you figure out what it actually boils down to. Um, but I think I'd like to read it to you. Um and uh, I, there's a couple things that I, I'll sort of have to make decisions as I go. There's a lot of block quotes. I'll try to indicate uh, where those appear. Uh, but there's also a lot of sort of in-text citations 
which uh, are going to be a little laborious if I cite all those. So uh, I'll do my best maybe by inflection to try to indicate when things are quotes or I'll, you know, sort of say that things are quotes. Um, but uh, yeah, some of the things, I don't know, I'll, I'll also try to make it sound, I don't know, as narrative as possible. Obviously, what's going to get lost is the citations. So understand that uh, maybe you'll hear me making some especially well-put points, and uh, I think uh, most of those are, are mine, and yet sometimes those might be somebody else's. Uh, the other thing is, um, in the second half especially, there's a lot of Chinese text. Uh, I'm not going to read the Chinese. I'll just sort of read the English translation. But um, yeah, this is the longest thing I've ever written academically. <clears throat> you know, I don't think it's perfect, although, but I think it does a pretty good job of um, addressing all the points I wanted to address, making the points I wanted to make. And if nothing else, I think it's uh, a decent example. Uh, it's a serviceable example that I would be able to function at uh, graduate school level. So I hope you like it. And um, who knows? I'll sort of get as far as I get with this. And if I feel the need to say anything else when we are done, then I'll certainly do that. But otherwise, sit back. Relax and enjoy my honors thesis. Confusedly formed. Xi Zhuan as a normative account of world genesis according to Bauman's first principles of science. There is a thing, confusedly formed, born before heaven and earth, silent and void, it stands alone and does not change, goes round and does not weary, it is capable of being the mother of the world. I know not its name, so I style it the way. I give it the makeshift name of the great. This quote comes from the 25th chapter of Tao Te Ching, the classic of way and virtue, a foundational text of Chinese philosophy putatively attributed to the 6th century sage Lao Tzu. What strikes me in this passage is the dichotomy between the narrator's confidence in presuming to know something about the state of nature before creation, while also emphasizing the limits of their understanding with respect to the same subject. Although the nebulous thing they are attempting to illustrate evades description, the narrator wields whatever language they have available to them in an earnest attempt to communicate something about its characteristics. In the end, Lacking the definitive taxonomic traits that we commonly use to identify a thing, the narrator simply applies the provisional sobriquets the way or the great. In my reading, these makeshift monikers exemplify a degree of intellectual honesty on the part of the narrator, which transforms the passage from mere supernatural speculation into something like a scientific hypothesis. The kind of science that this text engages in, however, is not synonymous with modern science, but science as enumerated in Brian Bauman's first principles of science. Brian Bauman, lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley in the Department of East Asian Languages and Culture, posits a list of principles which accounts of creation typically adhere to. In Bauman's conception, these so-called first principles of science begin with the acknowledgement of an undifferentiated void and progress, phenomenologically, to the establishment of a well-ordered state. Bauman scaffolds his theory by locating these principles in numerous cosmogonies from a diverse selection of cultural and religious communities. 
These texts include Egyptian accounts of creation, the Enuma Elish of Mesopotamia, Genesis in the Hebrew Bible, Kuainanzi of China, and many more. Additionally, Bauman explores these accounts alongside their soteriological counterparts in the Western religious, philosophical, and literary tradition exemplified by Plato's Timaeus, Dante's The Divine Comedy, the Old and New Testament books of Isaiah and Revelation, and many other works besides, including Francesco Solomena's painting, Allegory of the Four Parts of the World. In this essay, I interrogate the general applicability of Bauman's claim by exploring to what extent the Chinese text Xi Zhuan, Commentary on the Appended Statements, a canonical commentary appended to the divinatory and philosophical text of Yi Jing, conforms to Bauman's first principles of science. I begin by itemizing and elaborating each of Bauman's first principles of science alongside three cosmogonies, Genesis and Enuma Elish, both previously evaluated by Bauman, and one of personal interest to me, Popovu. I then recapitulate these principles alongside Xi Zhuan, locating those portions of the text which exemplify Bauman's principles. I conclude by asserting that while Xi Zhuan accords with Bauman's schema, its commentatorial function distinguishes it somewhat from the other foundational religious cosmogonies explored in this paper. Finally, I anticipate perceived limitations of Bauman's theory by other academics and attempt to answer those criticisms by contextualizing his approach alongside the type of scientific inquiry affirmed in Bauman's own theory and demonstrated in the Tao Te Ching passage above. Part 1, Bauman's First Principles of Science The Need for a Scientific Standard of Comparison Bauman's First Principles of Science begin by establishing a, quote, correct scientific standard of comparison, end quote, for scholarship and the study of world genesis. This standard, he asserts, should be true for everyone, everywhere, and always. Bauman elaborates, quote, The Academy today knows full well that the standard for comparison should be impartial, scientific. The best quality of academics today is the earnestness with which they strive to avoid interjecting their own personal opinions, beliefs, or faith into the question at hand and proceed diligently in as scientific a way as they can, end quote. A problem arises, however, in that science, as academia understands it, has nothing to do with science as it was originally defined. The Definition of Science In Bauman's conception, science simply means knowledge. He affirms the Oxford English Dictionary's first def definition of science, which reads, The state or fact of knowing, knowledge or cognizance of something, knowledge as a personal attribute. He also underscores the correspondence between science and knowledge by recalling its derivations, nescience, the absence of knowledge, and omniscience, all-knowing. Bauman highlights, however, that this first definition of science is also identified as archaic and rare. For most people, he asserts, the original meaning of science has been replaced by its modern definition, which understands science as a standardized method of inquiry that seeks to arrive at objective facts about the natural world through study and examination. A modern definition of science offered by the OED reads, the intellectual and practical activity encompassing those branches of study that relate to the phenomena of the physical universe and their laws, sometimes with implied exclusion of pure mathematics, 
also this as a subject of study or examination. For Bauman, this redefinition of science came on the heels of the work of Isaac Newton and has been the assumed meaning of the word, when used without qualification, since the European Enlightenment. By its original definition, however, Bauman argues that Newton was not a scientist, but a philosopher, guided by his faith in a method of inquiry, the so-called scientific method, itself founded on faith in unempirical assumptions about the nature of the phenomenal world. For Bauman, this faith in the assumption that there is an underlying order to nature is itself founded on faith in unempirical assumptions about the underlying nature of the phenomenal world, specifically immutable order, causal strict determinism, and absolute time. According to Bauman, these two definitions of science are categorically antithetical. While modern science accepts as fact that which can be objectively demonstrated, science proper is that which we know through empirical observation. Quote, Original science implies subjective cognition, what we know to be true empirically, through the alembic of our senses, through experience, careful study, and axiom, what is self-evident. Whereas original science is predicated on self-evident truth, modern science eschews self-evident truth. End quote. In Bauman's conception, modern science is a shul of self-evident truth and validates it as a universally applicable standard of comparison in scientific accounts of world genesis. Modern scholars reject ancient accounts of world creation not because they are not scientific, but because they do not recognize the species of science they exemplify. If true, Bauman's first principles of science can serve as a lexicon for the modern scholar to interpret the language of original science used and accounts of world genesis. The correct standard of comparison. Bauman contends that the correct standard of comparison for scholarship and the science of world genesis is knowledge of the existence of the void. Bauman defines the void as the existence of a one and undifferentiated state of chaos that precedes and pervades all nature in the absence of spatial and temporal orientation. For Bauman, the void is validated as the correct standard of comparison because its reality is both empirical and universal. Knowledge of the void is innate and involuntary, something that we know with absolute certainty. For skeptics of this claim, Bauman offers a simple thought experiment to substantiate our instinctive knowledge of the void. Quote, Leave this wrecked vessel of a world we call a civilization behind Walk out into the wilderness, and what will you find? Be sure, mind you, not to confuse leaving civilization for leaving the city and visiting a park. Yellowstone is a park and quite civilized. It has roads through it and marked trails and pleasant shops for buying t-shirts and ice cream. Its rangers do everything in their power to keep visitors from experiencing true wilderness. Imagine going out into the forest of the Canadian Shield or Russian Siberia or building a sailboat and sailing it on the ocean. What do you find when you do something like that? Rather than abiding order, what you find in the wilderness is wilderness. A wild that is wild because it bewilders you, leads you astray, induces you to lose your way and be lost. To venture out into the wilderness is to inevitably feel the presence of the void, constrict our freedom of movement, induce panic, and compel us to stop in our tracks and hightail it back into the orderly world of civilization, wrecked though it is. 
This passage emphasizes that the void is not the wilderness as such, but wilderness itself. Not a place, but a state of nature that bewilders us. A poignant depiction of humankind's bewilderment in the presence of true wilderness appears in the 2007 film Into the Wild, itself an adaptation of the 1996 nonfiction book of the same name, which tells the story of a young man, Christopher McCandless, who abandons the trappings of modern civilization by trekking into the Alaskan wilderness. Searching for an alternative lifestyle in the woods, however, Christopher ends up meeting with wilderness itself. He takes shelter in an abandoned bus that he happens upon, and, for a time, is capable of sustaining himself with the modest provisions and foraging skills he possesses. Still, it is not long before the bitter isolation and mounting challenges of surviving in the Alaskan wild convince him to return to society. With the change of seasons, however, he finds the path out of the wilderness by which he had entered is now blocked by a swelled river of recently thawed snowmelt. In that moment, Christopher knows the dire reality of his situation. Confident that his journal will likely serve as the only record of his last days, Christopher catalogs his final frantic attempts at survival until he, until he inadvertently poisons himself while foraging. Moose hunters find his corpse shrouded in his sleeping bag on the bus two weeks later. McCandless's story exemplifies the type of bewilderment that the presence of the void evokes. The OED cites writer Samuel Johnson for the original definition of bewilder, quote, to lose in pathless places, to confound for want of a plain road, end quote. Understanding the void as the want of a plain road in a pathless place will be especially useful in our reading of Shitsichuan, which conventionally refers to its ideal conception of order as Tao, variously translated as way, road, or path. Still, the want of a plain road McCandless feels, standing on the bank of a swelled river in the place where he expected to find the path home, is exactly the type of constriction of movement and induced panic Bauman posits in the presence of the void. And yet, while the wild, a place, and wilderness, a state of nature, are meaningful examples of where and how humans encounter the void, we should not conflate them with it. For a time, McCandless is able to keep the void at bay by recreating something akin to civilization in this abandoned bus. Moreover, someone with keener survivor skills might have been able to live out the rest of their natural life in the Alaskan wild. The point, however, is that surviving the void requires the purposeful construction of a conventional semblance of order. Still, that order is never permanent and is sustained solely through constant vigilance and maintenance. Only the void abides. It rears its head wherever and for whomever the conventional semblance of order disappears. A deep-sea explorer encounters the void at the bottom of the ocean when the walls of their submersible begin to buckle. Similarly, a jellyfish meets with it at the center of Times Square in New York City. The void is not death itself, but you will find it there. The Reality of the Void the void, Bauman affirms, is, quote, imminently real. Skepticism about its existence is a symptom of our faith in the conventional semblance of order that, for a time, shields us from it. While the void is permanent, conventional order requires constant observation, reification, and active human maintenance to keep it stanchioned. Bauman observes, quote, the void is an ever-looming presence, ever impinging upon established order. 
we regulate time, but lest we shore up time's regulated order with ad hoc adjustments, the void will swallow up time as we know it and reduce our calendars to nothing. We make things, cars, houses, shoes, philosophies, dogmas, but eventually such things are all reduced to nothing. We make worlds, governments, civilizations, but eventually the worlds we make dissolve like snow. We need not leave civilization to experience the void. To experience the void, all we need to do is nothing at all. If you leave a vehicle sitting for too long, the tires go out of round and the wheels won't roll. A house will stand only so long as you keep a good roof on it. Let the roof go, and over time the elements, or entropy if you like, will reduce it back to nothing. End quote. Author Alan Wiseman offers a grand-scale validation of this claim in his 2007 nonfiction book, The World Without Us, which presents a credible narrative of the rapid degradation of our human-built environment if people were to suddenly vanish off the face of the earth. He quotes an architect who echoes Bauman's assertion above when he says, If you want to destroy a barn, cut an 18-inch square hole in the roof, then stand back. By Wiseman's account, the onlooker wouldn't have to wait very long. The moment humans disappear from the planet, nature immediately begins the work of dismantling the edifices of our existence, beginning with our homes. Water horns its way under the shingles at the chimney, rusting the nails which begin to loosen their grip. The roof splays. Windows crack under the stress of sagging walls. Invisible spores enter and bloom into outbursts of mold. Wood rots. Floors warp. Pipes burst. The walls can't. Structural integrity deteriorates until the roof finally caves in. Wiseman calculates, That barn roof with the 18 by 19 inch hole was likely gone inside of 10 years. Your house lasts maybe 50 years, 100 tops. Still, the intrinsic infirmity of our modest homes, and the relatively mundane maintenance required to preserve them for a time, does not communicate the Herculean effort required by humans to maintain the conventional order as much as Wiseman's account of the ever-impinging degradation threatening New York City. He recounts, quote, Once, Manhattan was 27 square miles of porous ground interlaced with living roots that siphoned the 47.2 inches of average annual rainfall up trees and into meadow grasses, which drank their fill and exhaled the rest back into the atmosphere. Whatever the roots didn't take settled into the island's water table. In places, it surfaced in lakes and marshes, with the excess draining off to the ocean via those 40 streams, which now lie trapped beneath concrete and asphalt. End quote. Therefore, a consequence of the city's construction is a network of rising underground rivers that pose a constant threat to subway lines. The only thing preventing the tunnels from flooding is the incessant vigilance of subway crews and 753 hydraulic pumps which remove at least 13 million gallons of water every day from New York City's water table to keep it from overwhelming the city's subway system. Wiseman reports that 650 gallons of groundwater gushes from the bedrock beneath Van Sicklen Avenue Station in Brooklyn every minute and is neutralized by four submersible cast iron pumps working around the clock against gravity to reroute this perpetual deluge. These pumps, however, run on electricity, and in the absence of people, the pumps fail along with the power grid. Within a couple days, the subway system fills with water. Rainfall expedites the process. 
With two or more inches of rainfall, the flooding might take only 36 hours. Once the tunnels fill, the soil beneath the streets gets flushed away, pavement craters, and new watercourses snake across the surface of the city. The ceilings of subway stations become waterlogged and disintegrate. Within 20 years, the steel columns supporting the streets above them corrode and collapse, reducing the roadway above every New York City subway tunnel into a new river. Wiseman's account is capable of conjuring many platitudes. Change is the only constant. All good things come to an end, and this too shall pass. While all true, acknowledging the imminent reality of the void does not necessarily terminate in an Ozymandian verdict on the ultimate futility of human enterprise, although that's certainly a part of it. Rather, in the context of the science of world genesis, that is, world creation, Wiseman's account confirms that our conventional semblance of order is purposefully constructed and requires constant maintenance to endure against the ever-impinging reality of a void that we know, but rarely acknowledge. Whereas Wiseman's narrative is a credible account of how our material world someday succumbs to the imminent reality of the void, Bauman's first principles of science are an account of what humankind already knows about how to overcome it. The First Principles of Science The Task at Hand Recall again Bauman's definition of the void as the existence of a one and undifferentiated state of chaos that precedes and pervades all nature in the absence of spatial and temporal orientation. This illustration of the void also indicates what qualities the created world must, by definition, possess. Conventional order is created by variegating a primordial unity or chaos into the differentiated stuff of the phenomenal world and by ordering space and time. Although accounts of world genesis differ in specifics, Bauman's first principles of science enumerate how the world creators in each of these stories sets about these tasks. Face the Void as illustrated by the famous opening lines of the Hebrew Bible's account of Genesis, the first act of creation is an acknowledgment of the void. Quote, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. End quote. The descriptors used here, formless, dark, and deep, exemplify Bauman's characterization of the void as the undifferentiated chaos that precedes the creation of order. Additionally, this figuring of the void as primordial waters, although not universal, is normative in accounts of world genesis. The Babylonian creation story Enuma Elish, for example, begins, When skies above were not yet named, nor earth below pronounced by name, Apsu, the first one, their begetter, and maker, Tiamat, who bore them all, had mixed their waters together, but had not formed pastures, not discovered reed beds. When yet no gods were manifest, nor names pronounced, nor destinies decreed, then gods were born within them. Another example from the Mayan account of creation, Popol Vuh, reads, Here follow the first words, the first eloquence. There is not yet one person, one animal, bird, fish, crab, tree, Rock hollow, canyon, meadow, forest. Whatever there is that might be is simply not there. Only the pooled water, only the calm sea, 
only it alone is pooled. An exhaustive survey of accounts is outside the scope of this essay, but suffices to say that while they differ in specifics, the points of contact between various accounts of creation and their depiction of the void are numerous. Fix a point of reference. Having acknowledged the void, regulating its chaos begins by fixing an arbitrary point of reference. In a related aside, Bauman recalls, When I was a child growing up in North Dakota, my father took me ice fishing, and as we were driving out into the ice, he said, If we fall through, fix a point of reference. Doing that will keep you from panicking and you won't drown. This catastrophe of falling through the ice into the freezing water below is an evocative example that also evokes the primordial waters of Genesis. One can easily imagine the sudden panic of plunging into that disorienting darkness, instantly disabused of our conventional sense of direction. We would know instantly that up, down, right, and left are all conventional, ultimately arbitrary delineations, which are predicated entirely on one's point of reference. Therefore, surviving the void begins with the creation of spatial order by fixing that point. In the biblical account of Genesis, this is accomplished with God's injunction, let there be light, from which the creation of spatial and temporal order progresses. Assume the center. Assuming the center happens in the course of fixing a point of reference. Here, the word assume includes the connotations to take for granted and to take upon oneself. We assume the center on account of every point of reference being arbitrary. As Bauman emphasizes, any point will do. Arbitrary, however, is not the same as inconsequential. For a young Brian Bauman who has fallen through the ice, for example, establishing the hole he fell through as a point of reference is a matter of life and death. Still, within the undifferentiated chaos of the void, that point is as meaningful as any other. We also assume centrality since, in fixing a point of reference, we stake a position for ourselves in the undifferentiated chaos as well. In staking a position, all possible directions relative to it are instantiated also. Up, down, right, left, back, front, and every possible division between them in all possible directions radiate out from that fixed point. It is telling then that in the Hebrew account of Genesis, God fixes a point of light as the first act of creation. Light does not travel along any one path or in any one direction, but scatters everywhere in all directions at once. In fixing a point of light as a first point of reference, its literal and figurative radiance also instantiates the creation of spatial order. No time. Having assumed the center, we can no time. The OED defines time both as a duration and as occasion. As duration, time is an extent of time, the time it took me to get to your house from mine, for example. As occasion, time is a point of time, the time you had me over for dinner. Time as duration is not antithetical to time as occasion, but when considering time as occasion, duration is not necessarily significant. Within the first principles of science, Bauman privileges our knowledge of time as occasion. He elaborates, quote, Our world is a world of flux. Things go round and round, expand to contract, ebb and flow, run and bounce, delve and dive. Time, that is to say, moments of relative stillness, occurs in all of it. Time as occasion is stillness 
in the midst of motion. When you are in time with something, there is stillness between you and the other. When you are out of time, there is motion. End quote. This definition identifies the void with flux and figures time as occasions of stillness relative to it. Stillness, however, is not the cessation of movement. That is impossible, actually. Rather, stillness is the subjective phenomenon we experience when we assume, that is, take upon ourselves, the center, and we are said to be in time or relative stillness with any other arbitrary point we posit. A ballerina who attempts to execute a series of swift turns generates for themselves a void in miniature. To overcome the void and maintain their balance, they assume the center, literally the center of their own centrifugal force, and fix an arbitrary point they are confident their eyes can return to again and again at the end of each consecutive turn. Although the world is thrown into chaos each time they fling themselves around, as long as their eyes continue to locate that spot, that is, remain in time with it, they experience a relative stillness, lose track of that spot, however, and they're fluxed. Understanding time as an occasion of relative stillness between two points in a world of flux, Bauman offers, the perfect way to tell time is with light. While modern thinkers associate time-telling with clocks, the time they tell us is a rote recitation of the conventional delineation of our subjective experience of time as duration into arbitrary units. Moreover, clocks and watches are limited by the mechanisms by which they operate. Bauman insists, quote, Clocks move at different rates, give different measures, and quickly fall out of sync. Apart from random chance, none tells the actual time of an, of an external event, as reflected by light. Using clocks to tell time is like herding cats. They go where they will. End quote. While the time that clocks tell is an abstraction, reckoning time by the occasion of relative stillness between ourselves and the light of celestial bodies is empirical. Historically, measuring time by the light of the sun was done using a gnomon. As with the original definition of science, the root of gnomon also means to know, and the gnomon is one who knows. What does it know? It knows the occasion of an observer in a moment of stillness relative to the light of the sun. With the advent of light in the account of Genesis, the ensuing acts of creation can be reckoned as occasions, moments of relative stillness, and the otherwise tumultuous flux of the primordial waters. The text reads, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. With the appearance of light, the separation of light from darkness and delineation between evening and morning are the beginning of God's variegation of the undifferentiated void into the observable stuff of the phenomenal world. Observe the horizon. Before the creation of order, the void is a unity. One of the fundamental acts of differentiation is demarcating the boundary between heaven and earth by establishing the horizon. Genesis relates, And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome heaven, and God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. 
Separating the primordial seas into the waters of heaven and the waters of earth cleaves the void into two realms, the abode of humankind and the abode of celestial bodies. Bauman observes that this rending of the void into two halves is also figuratively illustrated in the Babylonian creation story Anuma Elish, when the sovereign, Marduk, splits the body of Tiamat. Face to face they came, Tiamat and Marduk, sage of the gods. They engaged in combat. They closed for battle. The Lord spread his net and made it encircle her. To her face he dispatched the evil wind. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow it, and he forced in the evil wind so that she could not close her lips. Fierce winds distended her belly. He shot an arrow which pierced her belly, split her down the middle and split her heart, vanquished her and extinguished her life. He threw down her corpse and stood on top of her. Later we will observe how the netting of Tiamat also indexes the figurative netting of the domed sky into lines of right ascension and declination. Observe here, however, how the evil wind Marduk sends into the mouth of Tiamat recalls the wind of God that sweeps over the face of the primordial waters in Genesis. Note, too, how the distending of Tiamat's belly also domes her stomach. The straight line of the horizon is illustrated by the straight flight of the arrow that split her down the middle into two halves. This doming of Tiamat's distended stomach, cleaving it in two, and Marduk's final act of standing on the corpse of Tiamat also evokes the sense of standing on the formation of dry earth in contrast to the dome of heaven. After subjugating the rest of his enemies, the story relates that Marduk returns to the body of Tiamat and provides a narrative of creation with many parallels to Genesis. And to Tiamat, whom he, whom he had ensnared, he turned back. The Lord trampled the lower part of Tiamat. He divided the monster's shape and created marvels from it. He sliced her in half like a fish for drying. Half of her he put up to the roof of the sky, drew a bolt across, and made a guard hold it. Her waters he arranged so that they could not escape. Here, Marduk begins to fashion a natural order from the monstrous shape or void of the body of Tiamat. The two halves of her body depict heaven as the roof of the sky and earth as the corpse that he trampled upon. As in Genesis, with the realms of humankind and celestial bodies differentiated, the Creator then sets about populating these realms with the manifold stuff of the phenomenal world. Encounter the Existence of Things Like Marduk of Enuma Elish who fashions marvels from the body of Tiamat, much of the remainder of the first account of creation in Genesis deals with the generation and differentiation of the things that constitute the phenomenal world. First is the generation of vegetation on the newly created earth. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. We will pass over and return to the creation of celestial bodies for the moment and observe only that their creation is followed by the generation of the animals that inhabit the liminal space between heaven and earth, which are inhospitable to humankind, the sky and the sea. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind, and God saw that it was good. Second, God summons forth the creatures that inhabit the earth. And God said, 
Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. Finally, the crowning act of creation is fashioning humans in the likeness of God and making them stewards and sovereigns of the earth. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. We will examine how the creation of humankind in the likeness of God reflects a symmetry between heaven and earth below. For now, suffice it to say that God first calls forth and encounters things according to broad categories. Separate one thing from another according to its genius. Bauman reports that, in the context of world genesis, the Creator begets the world according to their own genius. Bauman notes that genius and genesis share a common root, in concert with the OED's now obsolete definition of genius as a person's characteristic disposition, natural inclination, or temperament. Bauman concludes that the being of a thing comes into existence when we know their essential character. In the account of Genesis, for example, while the things of the phenomenal world are first called forth according to broad categories, they are further differentiated according to their inherent qualities. Vegetation is further differentiated as plants that yield seed and those that bear fruit with the seed in it. Living creatures are differentiated into those of the land, sea, and earth, and creatures of the earth into those that walk and those that creep. While these are comparatively simplistic taxonomies, they are a normative representation of how accounts of creation disaggregate the void into a natural order. Popol Vuh, for example, provides a more detailed account of the creation of animals and the genius by which they are organized. Now they planned the animals of the mountain, all the guardians of the forests, creatures of the mountain, the deer, birds, pumas, jaguars, serpents, rattlesnakes, fertilances, guardians of the bushes, and they gave out homes to the deer and birds. You, the deer, sleep along the rivers, in the canyons, be here in the meadows, in the thickets, in the forests, multiply ourselves. You will stand and walk on all fours, they were told. So then they established the nests of the bird, small and great. You, precious birds, your nests, your houses are in the trees, in the bushes, multiply there, scatter there, in the branches of the trees, the branches of the bushes, the deer and birds were told. When this deed had been done, all of them had received a place to sleep and a place to stay. So it is that the nests of the animals are on the earth, given by the bearer begetter. Now the arrangement of the deer and bird was complete. Here the animals are called forth in broad categories and differentiated into even more detailed aggregates than those that appear in Genesis. Deer and birds are singled out specifically and seem to serve metonymically for all the animals of the land and sky. And yet, while empirically recognizing things as only part of what brings them into being, we see that the existence of things is reified in naming them. Reify the genius of things with logos. Recall again that God's first creative act, the advent of light, occurs at God's injunction, let there be light, to which the narrative affirms, and there was light. Note that all of the generative acts of creation in Genesis occur as a result of God's spoken command. Things are both called into existence at God's command, and their being is instantiated by God's spoken enumeration of their kind and quality. 
A recurring quality of the Genesis account is its frequent doubling of the narrative by including God's full injunction and a full enumeration of its occurrence as a result. Regarding the creation of light, for example, the full passage reads, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Note the pattern, God said X, there was X. Once established, this pattern continues with minor qualifications in all of the creation passages that follow it. Another example is the protracted injunction and bringing forth vegetation quoted above. For brevity, we omitted the full reduplication of the injunction as occasion. However, the full passage reads, Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees of every kind on the earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. Here we see the creative act in full. The Creator disaggregates the undifferentiated unity, separating one thing from another according to their kind, and reifying their existence by naming them according to their genius. The power of the Creator's words to call forth and establish the phenomenal world is also emphasized in Enuma Elish. Marduk is prepared for his contest with Tiamat by the council of the other gods, who declare, O Marduk, you are our champion. We hereby give you sovereignty over all the whole universe. Sit in the assembly, and your word shall be preeminent. May your decree, O Lord, impress the gods. Command to destroy and recreate, and let it be so. Speak, and let the constellation vanish. Speak to it again, and let the constellation reappear. He spoke, and at his word the constellation vanished. He spoke to it again, and the constellation was recreated. When the gods, his fathers, saw how effective his utterance was, they rejoiced. They proclaimed, Marduk is king. Like God in Genesis, Marduk's sovereignty is figured by the creative power of what he speaks into existence. The passage repeatedly emphasizes the creative power of Marduk's word, speech, and utterance. There is even something in the council's proclamation of Marduk as king that seems to make it so. Notice also that, like Genesis, the passage contains the full reduplication of the injunction and the creative act with respect to the constellation. Especially for Enuma Elish, which survives as a text pressed into clay tablets, the redundant reduplication can be construed as a purposeful and meaningful inclusion since omitting it could have reduced the labor of its author while still communicating the same meaning. As a result, this redoubling affirms that the full conception the author's intent is only realized when both the injunction and its actualization are considered in conjunction with one another. Establish the four directions, the four seasons, and thereby a firmament. Creating spatial order from the void requires the establishment of the four compass directions as well as the four seasons. By syncing these points together, we construct a firmament against which events can be instantiated within space and time. Bauman elaborates, quote, We know the four directions, and we know the four seasons. We sync these points to create a firmament in the sky. The firmament is created by sinking the four directions and four seasons relative to a chosen point in space and time, a first point prime meridian. The firmament stops the sky from ceaselessly turning and makes of heaven a solid state like unto a solid dome or vault overhead. In this schema, each of the four directions is associated with one of the four seasons. It was a common schema to associate the east with the vernal equinox and spring 
south with the summer solstice, and summer west with the autumnal equinox, and fall and north with the winter solstice and winter. Here Bauman articulates how time is reckoned as occasions of relative stillness to the light of celestial bodies according to our conventional semblance of spatial order. This passage also clarifies the interdependence of these constructs. While dates and years are conventional abstractions of time predicated on a culturally specific and arbitrary year zero, instantiating an event within the temporal and spatial order is empirical. An event, as an occasion, can be reified spatially as a moment of stillness relative to the four directions and temporally relative to the seasons and the position of celestial bodies in the heavens. Genesis does account for the creation of temporal order by reckoning events as occasion relative to the position of celestial bodies relative to the four seasons. It reads, And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And yet, Genesis does not make explicit mention of the four compass points. The text notes that the Garden of Eden is planted in the east, so it is possible to infer their establishment. And later in Genesis, the, the compass points are all mentioned together when God proclaims to Jacob that, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Finally, it is possible that the river which flows out of Eden and divides into four branches can be read allegorically as the four points of the compass, and yet only two of the rivers named, the Tigris and the Euphrates, which run parallel from north to south, are identifiable. Still, it is observably true that Genesis is exceptional and that it does not specifically address the creation of the compass points, while other creation stories do. In Enuma Elish, for example, as Marduk readies himself for his contest with Tiamat, the text reads, He made a net to encircle Tiamat within it, marshaled the four winds so that no part of her could escape, south wind, north wind, east wind, west wind. This netting of Tiamat is an allegorical expression of the establishment of a firmament in the dome of the sky. This firmament, Bauman illustrates, is erected with the tent-pole-like colliers that emanate from the four directions relative to the four seasons. Imagine drawing a line with your finger beginning from a point on the horizon due north, then arching your finger up and across the dome of the sky down to the opposite point on the horizon due south. Then again, beginning with a point on the horizon due east, arching up and across the dome of the sky to the point on the horizon due west. In doing so, you have erected two tentpole-like colliers which divide the dome of the sky into four quarters. Finally, in the same way latitude and longitude create a matrix in which location can be expressed as angular distance relative to the equator and prime meridian, so too is the sky divided into degrees of right ascension and declination, effectively creating a net which is draped across the tent pole-like colliers which are sunk into the four points of the compass. Consequently, the otherwise ceaseless turning of heaven figured here as the creature Tiamat in Enuma Elish, is ensnared in the net of the firmament, and events on earth can be reckoned as moments of stillness relative to this matrix of temporal and spatial order. Bauman refers to this conventional temporal and spatial order as the tent of the created world. He elaborates, quote, 
Inside the tent is perfect spatial and temporal order. A young child won't get lost. Leave that tent of the created world, however, and walk out into the wilderness, and you inevitably feel the presence of the void constrict your freedom to move. The stars lose their way. But the idea was, if we create the firmament, we can create an order that will never go astray. Bauman's language in this passage recalls the ever-looming and ever-impinging presence of the void. Also, folded within the imagery of the netting of Tiamat is the looming threat of Tiamat, the void, slipping her restraints and throwing the world back into unregulated chaos. Therefore, as it is expressed in Enuma Elish, the creation of spatial order is not only hard work, but requires continuous and cautious observation to regulate. Similarly, Popo Vu cautions its readers that constructing a conventional order from the void and binding it with the four compass directions is a difficult task. The text asserts, It takes a long performance and account to complete the lighting of all the sky earth, the fourfold siding, fourfold cornering, measuring, fourfold staking, having the cord, stretching the cord into the sky on the earth, the four sides, the four corners, as it is said, by the maker, modeler, mother father of life, of humankind. By having and stretching the cord, establishing a meridian and equator on earth along with the tent pole-like colliers in the dome of the sky, this passage also figures the four directions as boundaries which give form to the otherwise formless void. The four sides and corners give literal shape to the world, and the fourfold staking, like Enuma Elish, evoke Bauman's image of the tent of the created world. Binding or tethering the structure is required to stanchion the spatial order against its nature, which is chaos. Observe the symmetry between heaven and earth born of light. The conventional ordering of heaven is reflected onto the earth. This is first true of the temporal and spatial order. The tentpole-like colliers that are sunk into the four directions and synced with the four seasons have the equator and prime meridian which divide the earth into four hemispheres as their counterpart. Likewise, the net that is generated from the matrix of right ascension and declination that is draped across the arches of the colliers is reflected in the degree of latitude and longitude that are drawn relative to the, to the equator and prime meridian. Still, along with the empirical symmetry between the conventional order of heaven and earth, Bauman argues that the well-ordered state accomplished through the establishment of a political and social order which are also built symmetrically with heaven. Here, Bauman arrives at the central role of sovereignty in accounts of Genesis. For Bauman, the sovereign in creation accounts is figured by the world creator. He writes, Cosmogonies grant that the world is created from that which is self-existent by a creator. The creator is something of a god, a sovereign, a demiurge. The creator relies on science, skillful means, art to fashion order from the void. In accounts of world genesis, the one who orders heaven and earth serves as the prototypical sovereign which the rulers of the world's political order fashion themselves after. Although a god, Marduk, the creator of heavenly order in Enuma Elish, is figured like a worldly sovereign. Marduk's parents founded a princely shrine for him, and he took up residence as a ruler before his fathers, who proclaimed, You are honored among the great gods. Your destiny is unequaled. From this day onwards, your command shall not be altered. Yours is the power to exalt and abase. May your utterance be law. Your word never be falsified. 
None of the gods shall transgress your limits. O Marduk, you are our champion. We hereby give you sovereignty over all the whole universe. Here we encounter Marduk as the sovereign of a heavenly court. His utterances are the laws which prevent the great gods from transgressing their limits. This language recalls Marduk's creating a natural order by reifying the existence of things through logos. Also, the laws that Marduk establishes through his utterance create a bounded order of heaven that will be reflected in the political order of the society which inherits and perpetuates this account of creation. The political order created in accounts of Genesis is built symmetrically with the ordering of heaven. Popol Vuh also renders the creation of the world occurring within a heavenly court. The narrative recounts that before creation, whatever might be is simply not there, only murmurs, ripples, in the dark, in the night. Only the maker, modeler alone, sovereign plumed serpent, the bearers, begetters are in the water in blue-green. Thus the name plumed serpent. They are great knowers, great thinkers in their very being. Like Marduk, the plumed serpent is associated with sovereignty. A note to this passage in the translation also indicates that a later Kitsche king adopted this name, which may suggest something about the symmetry between the representation of heavenly order in this account reflecting the political order of the community who authored it. Also interesting is the obfuscation of the singular in the plural. It is unclear in this context whether we are to understand plumed serpent as one person and the bearers and begetters as an other or there is something of the royal we that is communicated in the oscillation between singular and plural. This plurality is also present in Hebrew Genesis, which expresses the symmetry between heaven and earth through humankind's creation and the likeness of God. The passage recounts, And God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. This appearance of the plurals us and are is surprising, since God has until now been figured as an individual. Of this, the editors of the New Oxford Annotated Bible note, The plural us are probably refers to the divine beings who compose God's heavenly court. Image Likeness is often interpreted to be a spiritual likeness between God and humanity. Another view is that this text builds on ancient concepts of the king physically resembling the God and thus bearing a bodily stamp of his authority to rule. Again, that God is characterized as the sovereign of a heavenly court may suggest something about the political order of the community which authored this account. More importantly, Authority to rule being manifested in the king's physical resemblance to God is an expression of symmetry between heaven and earth. This authority to rule as an extension of the likeness of God is enumerated explicitly in the following passage in which God imparts dominion to the humankind over his creation. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. As the final act of creation, God creates a symmetry between the political order of heaven and earth by imparting a reflection of his sovereignty over heaven to humankind's dominion over the earth. Express knowledge of that order through allegory. The final principle of science is allegory as the proper mode of scientific expression. 
The OED reports that the etymology of allegory is varied, but from the Greek, its meaning is speaking otherwise than one seems to speak apparently. While scientific accounts of creation may seem otherworldly at first glance, their imagery always correlates to something empirical. Bauman elaborates, quote, As the scientific mode for expressing the phenomena of world order born of symmetry between heaven and earth, allegory in and of itself says one thing literally, but signifies principally something else. When it comes to cosmic allegory expressing symmetry between heaven and earth, terms that refer literally to mundane phenomena principally signify something of heaven, end quote. Consequently, allegorical statements resonate with multiple meanings. They possess both an overt meaning and a hidden one, possibly more besides. Bauman's emphasis that scientific allegory correlates to something of heaven reaffirms his supposition that, despite the supermundane appearance of accounts of creation, their science is ultimately an expression of empirical phenomena. Our frequent inability to recognize this, however, is due to the fact that the allegory conveys meaning through culturally and temporally specific tropes. While many allegorical tropes of antiquity are difficult for modern interpreters to discern, they were formerly regarded as elementary, widely understood, and a part of common creative parlance. A frequent example Bauman draws upon to illustrate this dichotomy of discernibility between modern interpreters and the original authors of allegory is the children's nursery rhyme, Hey Diddle Diddle. Hey Diddle Diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon, the little dog laughed to see such a sport, and the dish ran away with the spoon. Originally authored and understood as a description of the summer sky for people at mid-latitudes in the northern hemisphere, modern interpreters often misconstrue its meaning literally, fantastically, or else misunderstand it as little more than gobbledygook. On the level of apparent meaning, the range of possible interpretations is unbounded. However, one who possesses the requisite scientific knowledge to recognize the text's allegorical tropes is capable of interpreting its hidden meaning precisely, objectively, and empirically. The cat is recognized as the constellation Leo, the fiddle as Lyra, the cow as Taurus, the moon as itself, the little dog as Canis Minor, the dish as Crater, and the spoon as Ursa Major. While the allegorical figures themselves are abstractions, they signify something empirically and spatially real, the night sky. Moreover, the celestial scene is a, te is a temporally specific one, the night sky in summer. Despite its riddle-like language, allegory proper indicates something definitive regardless of the subjective perspective of the interpreter. This inability of modern interpreters to unlock the meaning of earlier allegories points to an inherent problem of allegorical expression also. Allegory simply mirrors. It does not explicate. It does not reveal its secrets or give any indication that it might be speaking other than it appears to be. Moreover, the meaning of allegorical trope is not universal, but specific to the culture and time period that authors it. Therefore, accurate interpretation of allegorical tropes requires a certain level of culturally and scientifically specific knowledge to ascertain its secret meaning. Given our propensity to read and study scientific accounts of Genesis only as the literal records of a community's beliefs about the origins of the universe, it is clear that this is not always done successfully. Summary To conclude, 
Bauman posits an itemized list of principles which many scientific accounts of Genesis conform to. However, modern interpreters often fail to recognize the science they contain based on a fundamental redefinition of science from its original definition as that which is known empirically to its modern definition of a system of inquiry aimed at arriving at objective facts about the underlying order of nature. Moreover, scientific accounts of Genesis are liable to be misread as bad science against this modern definition because modern readers do not recognize these accounts as allegory, or even if they do, do not recognize that their allegory indexes the empirical phenomena of the natural world. Despite the culturally and religiously specific language of allegorical trope wielded in each account, Bauman observes that they all begin with an acknowledgement of an undifferentiated chaos or void and progress phenomenologically through a predictable, though not invariable, order of steps. Fix a point of reference, assume the center, know time, observe the horizon, encounter the existence of things, separate them according to their genius, reify their existence with logos, establish the four directions, sync them with the four seasons, thereby establishing a firmament, observe the symmetry between heaven and earth born of light, and express the knowledge of that order through allegory. Finally, while the void is everlasting, the established conventional order is not and requires constant maintenance and vigilance to maintain against the ever-looming, ever-impinging presence of the void. Next, I will interrogate the general applicability of Bauman's claim by exploring to what extent the text, Xizhuan, commentary on the appended statements, a canonical commentary appended to the Chinese divinatory and philosophical text of I Ching, conforms to Bauman's first principles of science. And there we have the end of part one. <clears throat> I feel a bit like uh, Jim Carrey in the movie Man on the Moon at the end of uh, him reading Great Gatsby out loud. My throat is absolutely cached. Even if I wanted to read the second half of the paper, I couldn't do it. And I'm sure you've all had an earful. So I hope you enjoyed the first part of my honors thesis. Um, uh, the next part dives into the text of Shi Zhuan and sort of recapitulates these first principles of science against that text. So um, I hope you learned something. I hope uh, maybe some of what I've alluded to in past conversations makes a little bit more sense now that I've kind of... Uh, explicated and enumerated these first principles of science. Uh, and I hope you find that interesting. And I hope it's given you something to think about. So, um, yeah, happy to be done with the semester so far. Uh, happy to be sharing this, uh, uh, you know, this work that I've been kind of working on for the last few months with you. And I look forward to maybe giving you another update on how I'm doing. Uh, although I'll have four or less teeth in my mouth when I tell it to you next time. And also to read the conclusion of this paper. So, uh, until then, thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and ciao for now.